welcome back to the County Dairy Post Political Podcast. In this episode, we speak to Sinn Féin Councillor for Mid-Ulster, Sean McPeak, about council pragmatism, rural broadband and helping a local school go viral. I'll start off with uh, a very easy question, first of all. Why did you get into politics? Well, Liam, I, I sort of always was involved in community uh, activities of one sort or another. I was steeply involved with the GAA, you know, from a young age, played a bit of football and hurling, and then for a good number of years I was involved as an officer in the club. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it evolved maybe after that, and that coincided with me maybe growing up around the time of the hunger strikes as a, t- a late teenager around that 1981 stage and just seeing you know the way that just the way that society was the way that nationalism was being treated at that time and i just that came involved with the anti each block uh, campaign and the, you know the prisoners stuff and all of that and uh, the, the hunger strikes had a big impact on me and fair to say to the work of john davy was a local councillor and a very close friend of mine at that time and you know just saw the work that he did within his community and the, the need for it and that sort of drove me on to politics uh, at that stage you know. So what you're talking about role models there how important is it to have those role models in local politics? I well to be fair you know we all have we all have role models and you know when I look back as I say John Davy was a real pillar of my community around here in, in Lavi. John was Murdered in 1989, and um, John really would have been my and, and many, many others right throughout South Derry and further afield would have been a real role model for the just the terror strength that he was and the, the steadfastness he brought to the whole Republican movement at that time around the, the hunger strikes that very trying time. John was uh, the real pillar of Republicanism in South Derry, and uh, that would have been my role model at that time. But there were many, many others, you know, the, the hunger strikers themselves, and uh, those that went to prison and served long times and on the blanket and that would have been very much a role model as late Martin McGuinness uh, too, you know, for all of us and, and nationalism and republicanism was a huge role model. So the list is endless and it's unfair to, I suppose, maybe to mention anybody in particular, but uh, certainly from a local perspective, there was plenty of role models for me. Was uh, I was just checking through the data, was it 2005 you were first elected to council? That's right, um, yeah. Believe looking back on it, I was uh, co opted mm-hmm. for the, the late John Kelly. John was uh, the MLA at that time, or I think he was going to be an MLA. I certainly stood in for John at that time, and I think it, uh, two years later, then was my first fray into, into elections. I think the election then was two years later when I first became elected to the Marafelt Ward, Marafelt Town Ward. What would you say your your biggest achievement has been in that time in the council? I could easily say, you know, being chairman of council, uh, chairman of Mid-Ulster Council, chairman of Marafelt and chairman of Nilga, the local government association for the whole of the north. You could easily point to those, but I actually say the, the biggest achievements are the great, my greatest satisfaction and achievements would be getting stuff done for people. You know, I remember uh, within a couple of years coming on to council, I turned on uh, to, to lobby for the residents of a road around Lobby Hall Lane, a very steep entrance out onto the road. And they had been lobbying for many, many years, you know, 15, 20 years to get something done for that, uh, the entrance out onto the road. It was a, a quite a challenging feat to, to get done, and I recognise that. But we worked on it sort of day and night with the residents uh, at that time and built up a good repertoire with the road service. And we eventually got it done maybe 
two to three years later. And that there, to me, locally, was a better achievement than any change around people's necks or, or anything like that, because that really showed what can be done with a, a, a willing heart and you know the community behind you, because I just, I just think that always sprung out to me uh, when I look back in the early days and the achievements, but they're working together, I suppose, with the the agencies and, and convincing them that things need to be done and, and actually getting it done, be it a footpath or you know a piece of infrastructure or you know or even representing somebody at uh, tribunals or that type of thing. That that for me is far better achievement than than any other accolades. You know, be it chairs with council or local government association or anything else. What would you say then would be the biggest challenge you faced? The biggest challenge is I worked in for instalment for five years with the party and involved with the local government reform stuff I sort of led that up from the, the council perspective from my party within the councils and that was quite challenging because for a number of years as you probably remember at the RPA as it was called there the Review of Public Administration bringing 26 councils down till 11 it was up and down it was to happen I think on three different occasions and it was cancelled but the structures were all put in place there was a lot of preparatory work done for Sinn Féin, I led up that work at a local government level, and that was quite challenging because not only had you the, the other parties to work with, you had to work with the councils, you had to work with uh, what was called central government at that time, you know, the assembly departments, you were working with ministers, permanent secretaries and all that, and uh, that in itself, we were up and down that many times, but... Uh, well, it actually came about, as you know, in 2015. But, you know, even getting the finance in place, the councils were going to be happy enough that they were going to be laden with uh, huge debts and that the central government was going to pay for it. All those arguments were very, very challenging. I suppose even a local perspective too, you know, the political parties all had their own ideas on, on what needed to be done, where the new headquarters were going to be, what councils should be amalgamating with which and, and all that. And that was a very challenging three or four years, you know, but very satisfying when you when I look back on it, the, the way the councils have got it done and I'm really pleased with the outcomes and that, particularly locally here in the Ulster. Well, that, that actually brings me on to the, the next question, I say it. You've touched on it there at the more general level, but how have things changed in terms of Mid-Ulster, the, the council makeup and has there been any challenges in the in the changeover? To be fair, Liam, we all had, I, I would say, and I looked at this all over because I had a global view of it in terms of the North and the other councils were, were involved in that daily bread and butter work in them days. But I think that the marriage of the three councils in Mid-Ulster, Cookstown and Gannon Marifeld, was the most smoothest of any of the amalgamations in the North. And I'm saying that because predominantly it's a rural area it was a, a one constituency, the Mid Ulster constituency. It was a rural area, and we had, I think, crucially too, with a lot, a lot in common, and there was no big differentiation in terms of the borrowings or the wealth of any of the councils. You know, some of the councils uh, across the north were maybe twenty million. One was in twenty million debt. The other was 30, 35. and for them to come together and uh, the rate payers of the lower, the lower debt council to pay for the large often caused friction. But in Mid Ulster. There was there wasn't a million and a half between the three councils. You know, I think Marafelt was the only council in the north to come in with no borrowing at that time. Come in with a blank sheet with no borrowing. But Cookstown and Dungannon weren't far off it either. You know, between one and two million uh, each of them had. So even that in itself was not a very harmonious sort of uh, introduction to the to the new council. But 
Let's say by and large we're a rural area with a lot in common, you know, strengths in manufacturing, agriculture, agri-food, uh, that type of thing. So we all knew each other and, you know, we're able to begin on a strong foot day one. And really, I don't think we've, we've uh, went backwards. I think uh, mm-hmm. when you look at the record of Mid-Ulster so far, it was bedded on very well and delivering well in, in all aspects. As well as that, in the survey we had done, Mid-Ulster comes out very strongly and it's particularly in terms of cooperation between parties. Why do you think that reputation is there, that it is quite a cooperative council? Uh, well, I think it's, it's just a pragmatic way, probably, of the of the people here that we know to get things done, there's absolutely, and no doubt there is times when, absolutely there is times when there is severe disagreements or within the chamber, but you usually find that that's, it's nearly external driven. A lot of it can be what's happening on the outside, the bigger picture outside in the world of politics. There's uh, stagnation or friction in the wider politics, then you usually find that spills over, manifests itself in the council chamber too. But by and large, the parties do pull together and, uh, and work very cooperatively for their citizens. You know, for example, planning, I'm the chair of the planning committee, and party politics doesn't come into it. We're out to, 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 to try and make the Mid-Ulster work, to try and get development where it's needed listen to the voice of the objectors certainly whenever there's objections put on the planning but by and large across all the political parties we want to press forward with development and look after our economy and our communities in Mid-Ulster. You, know, you mentioned external issues there kind of causing friction. The DUP claimed there was a motion went in on Irish Unity in the council and the DUP claimed it had been just made up to grab a headline. How would you respond to that? Do you think that would be a fair comment? or? No, I think that was an actual fact Liam that was a motion it was in response to the centenary stuff. We were actually done a workshop a week or two before, it, and there's a lot of chat now about turning turn of the year and the centenary of the northern state and all of that. So it, it was in response to that that I said we, should, we shouldn't be afraid of looking back and certainly looking at what partition has caused this part of the world, you know, looking at the impacts. But I said more importantly, you know, we should be looking at how we go forward by looking at how it came about through partition in 1921 let's look forward particularly in the context of brexit now you know the changes that have been brought about so that's really why that discussion came about but you'll you'll know yourself that um, that it is absolutely it's contentious to unionism at, at this point in time but my argument was we shouldn't be afraid of the discussion there has to be preparedly work done for all these things and you know the wrong thing to do would be have a unity referendum when there's no preparatory work done, as as we've seen now with the, the Brexit outcome. You know, there was no, no preparatory work done for the consequences of Brexit, and we've seen the mess that that has caused. So, no, I, I felt that it was only right and proper that, um, that that was put forward. But there will be an element of unionism that will never that will never change to these. But I do believe that there's a sector of unionism, there's a sector of society out there that would have been indifferent uh, as to where their constitutional preferences lay up until now, but certainly with the, the way the direction of travel, the way that the south of Ireland has become a, a, a more welcoming and embracing society, the way society has changed there, the way that Brexit and the sort of the little Englander mentality has, has sidelined the people of the north, the fact that we're being put out of the EU against our will here, and all for me says that there's a very important conversation has to be had. And I think that is beginning to take place. Irish language signings is also something that has caused friction between nationalism and unionism at council level. I know it's the fifteen percent. You can correct me. This is the fifteen percent in place in Ulster. No, very shortly our policy. 
policy will go up for review. The way it is at the moment is that whenever a resident of a street puts on a request for a, for their street to be surveyed in bilingual form, they want, they want their signage in bilingual and they want a survey done. That. That's the majority, just a simple majority of the respondents that comes back determines where that, that um, street's going to be in bilingual form or not. So we haven't looked at that. We've, we've, I've saw and heard about uh, no differences in, in areas and what's happened. So we'll probably take that all into consideration. Obviously, there was the there was a bit of an issue in Lisburn Council with uh, Ryan Carlin had, had spoken there during the week. I noticed that Causeway are actually bringing the 15% motion to their council meeting on Tuesday. I'm just wondering, is that a coordinated approach that Sinn Féin are taking across the councils? Not, uh, absolutely not that I'm aware of. Best practice and that's always evolving and we, we turn our lead at the time of our initial bilingual Irish language policy on what was known as the EU Charter for Minority Languages and that's uh, right from Wales to Scotland to you know, all right across Europe. That's what the best practice stated that we should be going for and we followed it more or less to the letter of the law. Now, there may be changes that came about since that, but uh, we'll have to look at all them things. But by and large, you know, we, we were happy enough with the way the policy went here. But, you know, for some, uh, we don't want to see any Irish language or any manifestation of Irishness about the place, and that's unfortunate. And that, that actually brings me to the next point I was going to ask. I mean, that that's something that we have we hear over and over again that sometimes people just don't want to have anything to do with the language and you hear a lot mentioned about the barriers that are there within unionism towards Irish a lot of them would always mention politicization or the link to Sinn Féin historically how do you go about breaking those barriers down yeah it's it's a long run story that and back to what I said maybe earlier on Liam about outside influences you usually find if there's you know, if unionism, unionism feels irked about something at any given time, then that can manifest itself until Irish la- rejecting Irish language. There's always, I've heard the unions councillors have saying, I, w- I have no problem with Irish language, but there's always a but. When you look at other minority languages and the way they're protected in Wales, Scotland, etc., and there's always, they're always thrown back to, to Sinn Féin, why should um, Irish language be promoted, but you know, if, if nationalism and Sinn Féin and the SDLP and others don't push for for the promotion of it, that will die. And there's a very good, vibrant Irish language community out there. We have it in South Derry through, for example, the Ancarn organisation. Absolutely, do brilliant work, and I think it's a it's a slap in the face to organisations and to the many people that would use Irish language in education, bond school, man school, all of that that they're not getting the same level of protection than somebody in Wales or Scotland would get. I just think it's a, it's used as a football by elements of unionism that don't want change. And that, that's very unfortunate because you, know, you only have to look back. Uh, years ago, it was the Presbyterians that kept the language alive in Ireland. And I think, it's as I say, it's external. They'll be best best place to, to give a, a reason or rationale for it, but it's external pressures whatever they're saying that uh, don't want the language promoted, but it's very unfortunate that that's happening. Before Christmas as well, you, you were inadvertently responsible for some Bridges Mayo all going viral with their political portraits. Could you talk me through how that visit came about and were you surprised by the attention it got? That really lifted the spirits of, of the kids and the, the staff and the parents. And, and that came about, Liam, through St. Bridget Mayo. A good number of years now have been looking for a new school. The school itself is it's not fit for purpose, essentially. It's not fit for purpose. It's very small. 
uh, outgrown the, the numbers coming to it uh, means that the space isn't there. Been given a, a grant from the Department of Education a month or two earlier. It was announced there was a grant coming, and we allowed before we would accept the grant. I'm on the board of governors, by the way, of the school, and we allowed we would have a, a final throw of the dice uh, with Minister Weir in terms of making a bid for the new school, for a new school as opposed to the renovating what we have. As myself, I contacted Minister Weir. I've known uh, Peter Weir for a good a long number of years through the work of the local government association. I always had a, a good working relationship with, with Peter. And I, I spoke to him and uh, he said to put on a formal request and he'd come out. So he did come out within a month of the request, which we were all delighted about. And he spent a good afternoon going around the school. And fortunately, during lockdown, that there wasn't, he wasn't able to meet the, the, the pupils now because... There's a number of them there and went home early that day, but he didn't meet the staff and get a good look at the school. But fair play to, to Mrs. McCain and uh, Gronya. They had the children well prepared and had this montage of the uh, the portraits of all the politicians uh, done. So a tin minister tin very good cognizance of that and was delighted to see his own picture in the centre of it. And I must say I was delighted too because I never knew I was elevated to the heights of an MLA, but it was for that that week. But uh, no, a very very good school, uh, very vibrant children, very forward looking, and uh, their glass was always half full. And fair play to them that that that, uh, video went viral, as you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, it just lifted the spirits of the kids, their parents, and the staff, and all that time shows just how how simple we piece of good work we got how can change things. So. Hopefully it'll be a good omen for getting good news about a development on the school front at some stage. I'd seen an article where you'd been slightly critical of Project Strand before, or yet to be convinced, kind of. Does that leave you frustrated that those properties have been taken off the list? Broadband is something that is hugely important, not just the economy. It was always flagged up as a, an economic driver. Absolutely it is. But when you see, at the moment, back to the school children and, and remote learning, even for social interaction and all that, if we don't have broadband or adequate broadband speeds now, society's going to be left behind. And we felt that with the big announcement of Project Stratum, 150, 160 million common additional top-up monies coming from the government, that 150, 60 million was very welcome money, by the way, from, I think it was a confidence supply mm-hmm. uh, with the DUP and the Tories. It was an outshot of that, but nevertheless, very welcome. The Assembly was putting money till it as well. So huge expectation for, you know, that all rural premises were going to be uh, achieve super fast broadband but it's actually coming the more we're learning about it there's more been there's more um, loopholes on it this premises one premise and the road could be getting it and there and the neighboring premises now is not getting it and we just don't know the rationale for that because there doesn't seem to be any rationale proper rationale for it so we've asked for a meeting with the department council has initiated and so on um, survey right across the district a couple of weeks ago. It's open for an it's open to next weekend, and we're trying to get an accurate picture of who's entitled or who's going to be within the project stratum area and who's not, because this is going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity, and we can't have situations where partial partial roads are eligible and, and a neighbouring premises fifty yards away is not. But that's the way it's written at the moment. It's very, very confusing. And we have, within council, we've put an extra three staff onto this to try and, and whilst it's not the responsibility of councils per se, as you know, we can, our job is to try and provide a voice from those people out there that are 
now been told that they're not going to get available project stratum. So that's what we're trying to do and lobby the department and lobby Fabris. But this needs to be got right because broadband is, is an important utility as water or electricity is. It's as simple as that. It feels like Project Stratum has nearly forced OpenReach to up their game as well because, I mean, you mentioned Councillor McGurk, uh, the Feeney project where they pledged the voucher has been great success for Feeney in part. Is there something, I know there's one here where I live in Deloitte too, is there something similar that could be done in the, the South Derry area? We have looked at that, Liam, and if you had an area, an area where there was little or no broadband, it would be easier to achieve that. But the problem is you need a you need a critical mass of numbers and they want to sign up for that. And you could have one person feel that their supply is adequate or more than adequate at the moment. And you know, they're not one until you enter into that scheme. So you know, it's easier to do an area where there's little or no coverage, if you know what I mean, mm. as opposed to try and get everybody on board that maybe half to two thirds think that well, that's okay for me, what I have is grand. You know, that's the problem with it, you know, and there are areas where the broadband is that poor currently that, you know, them schemes do work and, you know, it should be embraced, I suppose, absolutely. But the full fibre, like, I've been working on this for some time now, even with the, the cross-border band group, and we went out to, to Europe uh, a number of years ago to look at uh, localised models out there. And some of the... Some of the countries, uh, um, we went out to uh, Holland to see it, but there was a, a sort of an international week for looking at best practice on full fibre. And we went over for uh, two days and we looked at, you know, they're rolling it out until areas like Lithuania, Romania, you know, areas that had full, uh, out in the remote areas of them countries where they had full fibre access, high speed broadband, where, you know, back here in, and right across was UK and, and Britain and that, that there was very, very poor broadband. So it was interesting to see the full fibre is the way to go. Just to finish off then, is there any specific goals you want to achieve in the rest of this council term or is there any issue that you feel is more prominent than the rest? I suppose just to continue to, to ensure that the best public services are for for people, you know, Liam, is broadband I just mentioned there is absolutely one but continuing on you know health and well-being um, i think is the way to go to because council is we're looking at delivering more health and well-being projects more footpaths more walkways you know greenways blueways as they talk about the greenways around parkland and the blueways would be you know for instance we're looking at the you know, beware of the portland own walkway from portland own till uh, new ferry that the council Council is working on there this last three, four years. We've a good bit of it done, the Portland fishing stands and Portland walkway down to Belois Ford and beyond. But we're looking to extend that to, to New Ferry and there's a feasibility study being done at the moment with Waterways Ireland and ourselves uh, to look at possibly taking that on to Tomb Bridge from New Ferry to Tomb Bridge. And that would be a really marvellous achievement if that could be done. You know, I'd like to see up around Portna done as well. And that's the Kilray site. And that's an area where, you know, the three councils meet mid-east Antrim is on one side of the river. Cosby Coast and Glens comes in the mid-Ulster side and joins on to the mid-Ulster. So, so, so we, it's a part of the constituency, the council area that could be easily uh, 
where the, the locals would feel that could be easily forgotten about because it's just mm-hmm. the three councils sort of meet. And I'm determined that we've raised both council officers that we should be including that area um, for development too, to see what we can do with the other councils to develop uh, opportunities around Hutchison's Key and Port Now. But I suppose locally, it's just funny this, there's a, a talk about footpaths. We'd like to see a footpath done from Gulladuff to what's known as locally as the Bay. And that's a very uh, dangerous stretch of the road. Indeed, I think in 2011, there was an unfortunate tragedy in that road. But if we had a footpath there um, from Gulladuff to that, it's only a, about a mile out the road, essentially. But if that was done, that would link the people from Gulladuff that they actually walk on the footpath the entire way to the north coast. And that's a big saying. You can go through Mahara, Swatra, Yarva, and the Korean, all on the footpath, except for that one we missing link. So I've often been uh, told about that from the people of Gulladuff, a case that should be made. And uh, thankfully now DFA are looking at it and designing up the scheme. So hopefully whenever this fund becomes available, Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, give it a share on social media or subscribe via your podcast player of choice. If you have any questions for future guests, get in touch via email on editor at dairypost.com or contact us via our social media channels.